Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to another installment of the Double-Edged Sword Program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations. Our flagship station, 88.1 KVDM Hayes, also 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And one of the things we always do on Double-Edged Sword is we take advantage of the fact that we have these wonderful Catholic radio waves that allows us to go into more detail than we other could at like a, otherwise could, you know, during an eight or 10 minute Sunday sermon or something like that, where we can um, talk about issues in a little bit more detail and read a little bit more scripture and, and hopefully walk away from things a little bit smarter and a little bit, just a little bit um, better for the wearer. So um, today I wanna talk about um, the liturgy and just in the interest of, of transparency, you know, liturgy is in, in Catholic land is a um, tremendous specialty in and of itself. I mean, you can go to very high-powered universities all over the world and get PhDs, get doctorates in liturgy. I mean, you know, you sit there and you go, well, gosh, it's just people going to church on Sunday. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. There's a lot going on. And um, one of the things, the thing I'm going to talk, the aspects about the liturgy I'm going to talk about today, and again, in, in, the, in the interest of, of transparency, I'm no expert on this stuff. You know, as a lot of us parish priests, you know, we're, we're not specialists. We're, you know, we're um, general practitioners. And so we have to do a little bit of everything, you know. Parish priests have to do a little bit of teaching, a little bit of building maintenance, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of liturgy, you know, a little bit of, you know, pastoral stuff, taking care of the sick and the dying. And so we have to do a little bit of everything. And so I don't want to come across as them sounding like some kind of a liturgical expert, which I am not. But I do want to comment on, you know, just kind of, I don't know what we might call a liturgical kookery or, you know, litur- liturgical, you know, wacko stuff that goes on. And, um, and see that it's been going on for a long time. You know, this, this goes all the way back to the writings of St. Paul. And we'll go into some detail with that here in just a second. But the, th- the thing that I'm going to comment about the liturgy, again, being kind of a, um, not an expert on this in this by any stretch of the imagination, but the thing I want to comment about is, you know, the, the fact that the liturgy is at one and the same time, it is very powerful and it is also very intimate. It is very personal. And, um, and probably those two things are related to each other. But when we talk about the liturgy being very powerful, it's because that's where, you know, most of us, that's where we encounter God. You know, we are going to encounter God at Mass and through the sacraments. And, you know, you look at a lot of the sacraments that are often celebrated in the context of Mass. You know, we have confirmation Masses, First Communion Masses. And whenever a, a deacon, priest, or a bishop is ordained, it's always in the context of Mass. Many weddings take place in, you know, in Mass and so on. Um, we, even, we can even have a Mass with the anointing of the sick, where, you know, pick people that are needing, needing the anointing of the sick, can come and, and there's a mass which has its own, you know, mass prayers and preface and everything, you know, for the anointing of the sick. And so, you know, the, the, the celebrations of the sacraments are very powerful because that's where we encounter and that's where we're dispensed. You know, the grace of God is dispensed to us, you know, to help us through marriage or through priesthood or through sickness or just through our day-to-day lives as Christians in the, in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And, you know, it's where we get healed um, in the sacrament of reconciliation or confession. And, you know, all these things are always very personal and they're also very powerful. And so the thing is, is since they are very personal, we tend to take liturgical things very personally. And so, um, you know, so what I want to talk about is in the first part of the program, we're going to talk about just some of the stuff that we see in the writings of St. Paul where, you know, the liturgy is not very old. These are very primitive liturgies. And, you know, maybe, you know, people have been celebrating the Eucharist or going to, you know, going to these primitive masses and so on for 20 years or something like that. Now, for not very long, you know, whenever St. Paul's writing about this stuff. And so what I'm going to talk about is uh, what the first thing I want to show is, you know, we, you know, we think about, you know, liturgical, you know, mistakes or, you know, kind of goofy things that go on. Because I think a lot of us are still kind of reeling from the liturgical changes that went about as a result of Sacrosanctum Concilium, which was the document of Vatican II, which outlined the reforms of Vatican II, you know, which drastically changed the Mass 
from what it was before 1965 until after. And so, um, you know, one of, one of the things was, you know, that the Mass changed from being in Latin to being in English. And um, the, the various um, liturgical actions and so forth that went on during Mass, if you, look at an, if you look at a video of an old Latin high Mass and you compare that to your Sunday Mass that you went to this past Sunday, they, they look like two very different things. I mean, a lot of the elements are the same in that there is still a, you know, a liturgy of the Word and a liturgy of the Eucharist, you know, bread and wine are changed, you know, by the actions of the priest and the power of the Holy Spirit into the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, all that stuff's the same, but there's a lot of peripheral things that are very, very different. And um, whenever you change stuff like that, you know, whenever the church, you know, did this, you know, humongous change of all this stuff in the wake of Vatican II, you know, since the liturgy is very powerful and very personal, you know, people are still kind of, you know, dealing with that. And so, but what I want to do is I want to look back to um, 1 Corinthians 11, where St. Paul is dealing with, you know, liturgical mess-ups that were going on even back during his days. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, basically, you know, St. Paul is talking about people that were going to Mass and they were, be, they were being distracting. And they were, you know, they're going to these primitive liturgies and they were, they were distracting by the way they wore their hair, for example. And um, another one of his writings, St. Paul talks about that, about, you know, we want to get dolled up. We want to look good to go to Mass. I mean, sad to say, in our day and age, a lot of people come to Mass. You don't know if they're going to Mass or going to the lake. You know, people just kind of wear whatever it is they have on. And, you know, people a lot of times look pretty sloppy coming to Mass. You know, the, the rationale is, well, you know, God looks on the inside. He doesn't look on the outside, which is true. But again, you stop and think about, you know, when we have important things, we have job interviews or, you know, an important dinner, we always get dressed up for it. Why wouldn't we get dressed up for this personal and powerful encounter with God? And so, um, but, you know, at the same time, things can get ridiculous. You know, people can, you know, come to church, you know, kind of overdressed because all they want to do is call attention to themselves. And that's what St. Paul was talking about. And so, you know, again, in, in, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, in the first um, 16, cha- 16 verses, he's talking about, you know, about those various things, about how to, you know, how we should wear our hair and, and things like that. But the next half of 1 Corinthians 11 is where St. Paul, you know, sets his crosshairs on, you know, the, the goofiness that was going on during the actual celebration of the Eucharist back in those days. And um, in verse 17, I'm going to read a little bit here to you. It says, Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry while another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What, what should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Now, what was going on back in those days was at the Mass, it was kind of like a combination, you know, they the didn't have the communion fast, that's for sure. But it was kind of a combination of Mass and a potluck supper. And, you know, people would, would bring food, and they, they call them their agape meals, their love meals. And, um, and people would bring food, and, you know, as, as St. Paul says, some people would bring, you know, really choice, nice, tasty food, and other people would sit there and be hungry. And so Paul says, you know, eat it, you know, eat at home. You know, you don't need to be bringing food to church. You know, come to church for the Eucharist. Now then, St. Paul then goes on to say, and this is the part that we have from Mass, in fact, the, 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 what's called the institution narrative, when Jesus takes the bread and wine and pronounces them to be his body and blood, the, ones, the, the prayer that we have at Mass, the words we have at Mass, don't come from Matthew, Mark, or Luke in the, in the Last Supper stories. They come from St. Paul. It comes from here. In, ver, in verse 23, where St. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord and as Lord's death until he comes. So again, that should be very familiar to us. Then, 
St. Paul goes, goes on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. This is kind of a separate presentation, but that but verse 27 is just too precious to pass up. In that one little verse, St. Paul hits on two very, very serious, profound truths. One is, is that we have to be in the state of grace before we receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup unworthily will be answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. You can't be answerable to a symbol. You can't be answerable to a representation. You know, this we're talking about the real presence of Christ. And so, and so in that little one verse, he's talking about the necessity to be in the state of grace, but also of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Then St. Paul says, examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread or drink of the cup. For all who eat or drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Um, that's what the church always describes as a sacrilege. If we receive a sacrament, except for the sacrament of reconciliation, or the sacrament of anointing of the sick, if we're properly disposed, if we receive any other sacrament in the state of serious sin, then we compound it because you still have the serious sin, and then we add on top of that the sin of the sacrilege, having desecrated the sacrament. Okay? Then, jumping down to verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About other things, I will give you instructions when I come. So there we see an early, you know, kind of liturgical abuse, as it were. You know, people were, you know, at first they didn't really draw much of a distinction between going to communion and, and, and again, the parish potluck supper. It was all kind of one thing. And, um, you know, they, they would have, I'm sure they had readings and, you know, spiritual exhortations and so on. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, the things, the things got, you know, mushed together. And St. Paul says, enough of that. From now on, eat your dinner at home, eat your food at home. And then when you come to church, when you come together as a Christian community, um, you can celebrate the Eucharist there. But you can see that even back in those days, you know, in the earliest days of the church, there was, you know, people were messing up the liturgy. And how are they messing it up? By coming to church dressed outlandishly, outrageously, mostly just to call attention to themselves. And also then, you know, with the sacrament of the Eucharist, not really, um, you know, seeing it as what it is in and of itself, but combining it kind of with these potluck suppers and, you know, again, causing all kinds of confusion there. And so St. Paul has to clear that up. Another abuse that St. Paul tried to take on back in those days with the when in 1 Corinthians was the idea of food being offered to idols. And this comes from chapter 8. Um, the background behind the thing was, was that back in those days and, you know, in the pagan world in which Christianity was born, you had the practice of people that worship various gods with a small g, they would go to a particular meat market and the meat market there would be run by a guy who believed in the same, you know, pagan god that you did. And then whatever meat you bought there had been sacrificed to that god. And so by buying your meat from that particular meat market was a way for you to kind of practice your pagan faith. Now the Christians come along and they're going, well, we don't believe in those pagan gods. And so we shouldn't be buying their food. And so then what did you have happening? You would have people saying such things as, well, you know, we don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, so we're just a little bit better than you are. And other people were saying, you know, idols are fake. We know that there's nothing to them. And so by virtue of the fact that we can eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols because our faith is more sophisticated than yours is and we understand it better, then we're better than you are, okay? And so, you know, St. Paul takes that on. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we'll see this in 1 Corinthians 14. St. Paul makes a big thing out of building up. In verse 2, Anyone who claims to know something, yet does not have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that no idol in, in, in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, in fact, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Food will not bring us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care of this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, they might not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols. So, by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is the cause of their failing, I will never eat meat, so that I might not cause one of them to fall. So again, St. Paul, you know, just makes a very, you know, as he always does, a very practical solution to the problem. That if you have two people, one person says, look, my faith is such that I know these idols are fake and bogus, and if I eat meat sacrificed to an idol, you know, my faith in Christ is firm and it doesn't affect me in the slightest. Someone else who maybe is still trying to work their way out of, you know, the, you know, their previous weakened pagan state is going, no, if I eat the meat sacrificed to idols, that means that my faith in Christ is weakened, so I can't do that. And so St. Paul says, look, don't fight about this. You know, this is not worth, you know, getting into a, to a tiff about, and it's not worth destroying a weaker person's faith over. If your faith is strong enough to let you do it, but in front of some, if it's going to cause problems to someone else, then don't do it. What's the big deal? Why make a, you know, why make an issue out of it? And so again, you know, this idea back in those days of someone saying, you know, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols because my faith is purer than yours. Well, I can meet, eat meat sacrificed to idols because I know me that idols are fake. My faith is more sophisticated than yours. And so, you know, St. Paul is saying, if all you're doing with this is just tearing each other down, then don't do it. You know, St. Paul says, if me eating meat sacrificed to idols, because, you know, Paul will be one of the ones that says, I know the idols are bogus. If I can get a good price on a roast at the market, I'm going to do it. But St. Paul says, but if it's going to cause a weaker person to stumble, I'm just not going to eat meat. You know, and again, I think that we can learn something from that. That, um, you know, whenever we're talking about liturgical practices and so on, you know, we still have the whole question of not eating meat on Friday and things like that. You know, that if, you know, these things are meant to build us up. And if they're not going to build us up as a community, the reason why they don't is because we take them and weaponize them and try to use them against each other. And that's just not good. Another early misuse we see of the liturgy um, comes from St. Paul's letter to the Romans where basically it was, you know, the liturgy of, of, of kind of the cult of personalities. Um, you know, St. Paul talks about the, how the community in Rome was, um, he, he talks about the, them being a fleshly people. Um, he says, I fed you milk, not solid food. This is um, Romans chapter 3, verse 2 and following. I fed you milk, not solid food, because you're unable to take it. Indeed, you are still unable even now. For you are still of the flesh, while there is jealousy and rivalry among you. Are you not of the flesh behaving as an ordinary human way? Whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What is Apollos after all, and what is Paul? Ministers through whom you became believers, just as the Lord assigned each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so again, you can see what St. Paul is kind of going after here, is there were folks in the Roman community they were saying, you know, well, well, Paul brought me the gospel, so that makes me better than you because you were just of Apollos, you know. And Paul says, no, that you know, you can't do that. It's kind of like in our own times, you know. Well, we belong to Parish X. That makes us just a little bit better than you who belong to Parish Y, because you know, Father X is our pastor here, and and you know, he he's he he does you know gives better sermons or has a better singing voice or whatever than Father Y does at your parish or whatever, and so. Again, we can see that same sort of um, liturgical misuse, you know, has roots going all the way back to the earliest days of Christianity as evidenced for us in the letter to the Romans. The next one that I want to look at comes in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. And it's worth a read in and of itself. The one, the cool thing about, about the first letter to the Corinthians, remember when St. Paul wrote this down, he did not put chapter and verse to any of it. He just wrote it all down. Um, the nice thing about 1 Corinthians is it really lends itself to being chopped up into into um, into various chapters. You know, like I say, you know, chapter 11 talks about the um, goofiness that was going on with these early liturgies. Chapter 7, he talks about, you know, the sacrament of marriage, the vocation of marriage, and, you know, everything about marriage, including widowhood and things like that. 
And then here in chapter 14, he's talking about, you know, the elusive speaking in tongues and what that means. And so before we start this, we need to be clear about what we mean by speaking in tongues, because whenever you use the same word for two different things, confusion always ensues. And so the thing is, is that when we talk about speaking in tongues, like on Pentecost, whenever the apostles got out and, you know, and, and in Acts chapter 2, you know, all these people, you know, were Greeks, Elamites, you know, from Cappadocia and Phrygia and so on. How do we understand these guys speaking in our own language? Well, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of our miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, these uneducated fishermen were able to spontaneously start speaking new languages that exist that they never studied. It would be like one of us, if the Holy Spirit just gave us the power and we just all of a sudden start speaking Mandarin Chinese or something like that, you know, some language that we never spoke, we never understood, and all of a sudden it's coming out of us. So that's one thing, but that's not speaking in tongues. Whenever we talk about speaking in tongues, um, and, you know, a number of Protestant denominations make a really big thing out of this, and St. Paul's going to kind of put it into a proper perspective here. But um, whenever we talk about speaking in tongues there, it is a legitimate manifestation of Christianity because it's attested to in Scripture. And so you can't just brush it aside. But it has to be kind of, you know, kept into a proper perspective. And um, that's what St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. When we talk about speaking in tongues here, what we're talking about is someone being, you know, someone being taken possession of by the Holy Spirit. And it is such a profound experience that when the person tries to put into words what they're, what they're experiencing, they just babble gibberish and no one can really understand what they're saying. On the other hand, you know, there is, there is a um, gift, another gift of the Holy Spirit of interpreting the tongues where someone else who is still kind of in their right mind, they can hear these babblings and they can interpret for everybody else, you know, what they mean. In fact, whenever, whenever St. Paul ta talks about these various gifts that come to us from the Holy Spirit back in chapter 12, you know, he talks about um, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, and various kinds of tongues. Notice, speaking in tongues is the last on the list. And this isn't just a, um, um, a, a random list because St. Paul says that God has appointed in the church first apostles, those would be the, the bishops, second prophets. And basically, back in those days, prophets just kind of meant like, you know, a, a teacher, like a, like a member of the magisterium, like the bishops, you know, someone that has the, has the authority to teach with authority, you know, that whatever they say has to be taken seriously. Then teachers, which would be catechists, then deeds of power, gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, some translations say administrators, and then it says in various kinds of tongues. Well, you have first, second, third, fourth, and down the line, and tongues is the last on the list. Tongues comes after administrators, and we all know what we think of administrators, right? And so tongues is the last on the list. And so, you know, St. Paul is kind of putting this whole thing of speaking in tongues into perspective. Because then when you get into, um, into, chapter, into chapter 14, um, St. Paul, the, one of the... the the word, the phrase we're going to see, see used here over and over and over again is building up. In that St. Paul says the most important thing is that people are built up. All right? And so in chapter 14, he says, Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Okay, what does prophesy mean? Prophesy means to teach. Prophesy means to make connections. Prophesy means to... You'll be able to take one of the teachings of Jesus and apply it to the here and the now to where people go... Oh, I see what that means. I see the, the richness of that particular teaching of Jesus, okay? And so he, so he says the main thing is, is to prophesy. Because why? If you look back on his list of, of gifts in chapter 12, prophesying or teaching with authority is second on the list right behind the bishops, all right? And so then when he says, he, he says, you know, that you may prophesy, he says, from verse 2, for those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people but to God, for nobody understands them, since they are speaking the mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, again, like I said, they're overcome by the Holy Spirit, and they can't put the, they can't put the experience into words, and they just kind of make this unintelligible gibberish. Verse 3, on the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for their building up. So here we're going to see a lot of building up talk. And their encouragement and consolation. So in verse 5, St. Paul says, Now I would like all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. 
one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So again, speaking in tongues, if it doesn't benefit everybody, it's of no use, St. Paul says. Now, in verse, in verse 6, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I, bene- how will I benefit unless I speak to you in some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? It is the same with lifeless instruments that produce no sound, such as the flute or the harp. If they do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If in a tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of sounds in this world, and nothing is without sound. If then I do not know the meaning of the sound, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in them in building up the church." So there again, you know, we have St. Paul telling us that the most important thing is that the church gets built up, that everyone gets built up. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. What should I do then? I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will sing praise with the mind also. Otherwise, if you say your blessing with the Spirit, how can anyone be in the position of an outsider to say amen to your thanksgiving since the outsider does not know what you are saying? So again, you know, what you know, St. Paul is saying is, speaking in tongues, well, goody for you. What about the rest of us? And in verse 19, I'm going to skip a little bit, or verse 18, he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay. And so again, you know, there's, you know, St. Paul is saying, you know, that, um, that, you know, it's the more important thing is to be able to speak in a way, you know, that, that, you know, we prophesy and that we teach so that everyone benefits. Because again, if we're speaking in tongues, the only person that's benefiting from that is the person speaking in tongues. Now, again, it's a legitimate part of the tradition, and you can't just brush it aside, but it has to be kept in its proper perspective, and St. Paul evidently doesn't think that it's really that important. In verse 22, and here's where he really kind of, you know, as St. Paul does, you know, kind of hits people right between the eyes. He says, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Here comes another jet, sit tight. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all are speaking in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enters, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So, again, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, you know, the, the abuse that was going on, the, the misuse of the liturgy, is people coming together and saying, well, you know, well, we speak in tongues at our gatherings, and that makes us just a little bit better than you, right? And, and St. Paul saying, well, no, it doesn't, in fact. Um, you know, speaking in tongues is not that big a deal, and that you're you're supposed to be inviting people in. You're supposed to be evangelizing people, and if people come in to your prayer, to your prayer meetings, or to your liturgies, and they see people rolling around the floor and you know uttering all this gibberish and everything because they're supposedly slain in the spirit and you know speaking in this tongue, people are going to go, "You people are crazy," and then then you're not going to get any followers. You're not going to get any converts. And so that was kind of the second one that I wanted to um, that I wanted to look at is again this whole idea of speaking in tongues. I remember one time years ago I was filling up with gas, and um, I had my black clergy shirt on, and this guy comes up and, and he goes, "Hey, hey, you a preacher?" And I said, "Well, yeah." And I'm, well, "What what church you preach at?" And um, I said, "Well, I was at St. Joe's in Hayes at the time," and I said, "Well, at St. Joseph's in Hayes." And, Oh, you're Catholic. I say, yeah. I went to Catholic Mass one time, and at our church, we speak in tongues. They don't speak in tongues at your Mass. And I said, well, did you ever read 1 Corinthians 14? I'm not familiar with that piece of Scripture. I, could, I said, I can tell you're not familiar with that piece of Scripture, because if you were, you wouldn't be making this ridiculous statement. Why don't you take a look at that? You know, St. Paul says, you people who speak in tongues are out of your minds. And, um, and he, you know, was kind of taken back by that. But again, this idea, the liturgy is personal and it's powerful. And so if someone can take the liturgy somehow and twist it around and make it about themselves somehow, you know, it gives you personal power over other people. 
And so, you know, again, I think that's one of the reasons why the, um, you know, this whole thing of speaking in tongues is such an inviting thing to, an inviting thing to a lot of folks when St. Paul says it's really not that big a deal at all. So again, to kind of recap, um, what we're looking at here, we looked at two things in the, in the, in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians about, you know, you know, messing people, the way people were messing up the early liturgies. Um, the first was at the, at the liturgy of the Eucharist, you know, people bringing, bringing their own food to church. And, you know, some people are, you know, wolfing down all kinds of choice foods and other people are going hungry. And St. Paul says, no, eat at home, come to church for the Eucharist and that's it. And then the second one, of course, was this whole, the whole thing about speaking in tongues, where, again, it's a very dramatic thing. You know, people think that it's really cool, but St. Paul says it's not that big a deal. And so, um, so the, for the, again, for the first segment of the program today, I just wanted to talk about, you know, back in the days of even St. Paul, when, you know, Christianity wasn't even 25 years old yet, and already you had people taking this powerful, personal you know, force called the liturgy, and they were twisting it around and, you know, kind of, you know, making it into whatever it is they want to make it into, probably for their own personal, you know, advantage and, and advancement. So that's kind of the first part. Now, we get, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about some of the various things that go on in our own times and that how we have to keep, be on the guard for this as well. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral here in, in, in Salina, Kansas. I also teach religion part-time at Sacred Heart High School. And um, you're listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations of KVDM 88.1 Hayes, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina where we are cutting to the, heart of a, to the heart of a deceptive culture. And right now we'll take a little bit of break, but um, you sit there, sit tight, and we will be right back. Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchin, and you're tuned in to the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KVDM 88.1 Hayes, our original and flagship station, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And today we're trying to cut to the heart of the deception of, you know, people doing goofy things with the liturgy. Um, again, to reiterate from the first segment of the program, I do not claim to be a specialist in the liturgy. I am not at all. Um, again, the liturgy is one of those things you can go to very prestigious universities around the world and you can get a doctorate in liturgy. That's how, you know, big a deal this is. And I'm just going to, the, for the purpose of this program and because it's about all I know, um, all I'm going to say about the liturgy is that it is a very personal and a very powerful encounter with God. And, um, and because it is so personal and because it is so powerful, um, people get, have very, very strong reactions about the liturgy and what we might do with it. Um, some people probably have very bad memories of goofy things that went on um, during, the, during the 1970s. You know, we were, we were just coming off of, the, of the, the old Latin mass, the Latin liturgy, which was very structured and very regimented and it was done in a certain way. And, um, you know, people were kind of used to that. And then in the, in the wake of Vatican II, you know, the Novus Ordo, the New Order Mass, the Mass of Paul VI, the one that we all know very well today, you know, kind of came in. And I believe that if it's done and done well, it can be a very beautiful thing. But unfortunately, for a number of years, it seemed like with a lot of folks, the idea was, well, how do we take the liturgy and make it novel, make it new, make it, you know, I don't know, you know, make it pertinent to young people or whatever. There's all kinds of goofy things that were done. Maybe you've heard some of these horror stories of, well, you know, we're not going to, you know, we, 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 we want to reach out to the young people and sitting in rows on hard wooden pews in church, that does, that's not the way young people do things. So, you know, we're going to go into the rectory and put beanbag chairs around the coffee table and Father's going to have mass there. And so there was goofy things like that that were done. I remember once when I was in the seminary, one of the monks, he was telling us a story that when he was a kid and um, he was in like seventh or eighth grade. And again, they were having one of these so-called youth masses. And, you know, the, you know again, in, in an effort to try to make the mass, you know, speak to the young people and so on. 
you know, rather than using bread and wine at the at the at the at the at the mass that they were having, probably a beanbag chair mass, um, the priest brought in hamburgers and cokes, and um, consecrated. He didn't consecrate anything because it's invalid matter, but um, but he but he con- supposedly consecrated the Coca-Cola and the hamburgers, and they had that for communion because that's what kids are kind of more in touch with. You know, kids aren't in touch with bread and wine. You know, that's from you know centuries and centuries ago. Well, you know. Nice attempt, you know, probably, you know, a, a good intention there, but that's just kooky, um, and and it doesn't really do anybody any good. And so, you know, we see these liturgical innovations that um, happened during the, you know, during the, the late 60s and then through the 70s, and it, it just got goofier and goofier. And you, you look at the way that a number of churches were butchered up on the inside, you know, all, you know, kind of in the name of, you know, modernizing and, you know, bringing the liturgy up to date and so on. And, you know, and people were hurt. I mean, you know, people, you know, people would go to a church that's like, hey, you know, I was baptized here. I was married here. My kids were baptized here. You know, I had my first communion here. My parents, you know, funeral mass was here. And they come in and they, you know, they ripped everything out all supposedly in the name of, of updating the church or whatever. And that's what I mean. With the liturgy being such a personal and powerful experience in people's lives, people don't take too well to that. Now, you know, sometimes there are some things that, that need to be done, you know, when the, the liturgy needs to be cleaned up and it needs to, you know, be in in um, in harmony with what the church says that it should be, um, that's all well and good. But, um, but at the same time, in the past, you know, a lot of other goofy things were done and it didn't really bring anybody closer to God. All it did was just made people mad and, um, and left a lot of confusion in its wake. And so um, that, you know, that obviously wasn't any good. But in, like I said, in the first half of the program, we talked about the way that was going on even back during the times of St. Paul. And now I want to bring it up, you know, and talk about stuff now here in, in our own times. And kind of what I want to talk about is, again, this idea that we had that we found in 1 Corinthians 14. And that's this idea that, you know, people in, in, the, in the Corinthian community evidently kind of had this attitude that, well, you know, in our little Christian community here, because Corinth was a huge city, you know, there would have been a pocket of Christians on one side of town and a pocket of Christians on the other side of town or whatever. And people kind of saying, well, you know, when we get together, though, we speak in tongues. That makes us just a little cut above you guys. That makes us a little bit better than you guys. And see, again, you know, with the liturgy being that powerful and intimate experience, it's supposed to be what pulls us together. I mean, that is just nothing but the work of Satan himself. That if we're gonna if we're gonna take the liturgy and use it to divide ourselves, um, that's 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 very bad. That's I mean that's the polar opposite of what Jesus expects and what Jesus wants out of our coming together to celebrate His presence in the Word that is proclaimed and in the breaking of the bread. So where do we see that today? Well, before we go into that. I want to share a little conversation I had with one of my brother priests who's much more educated than I am. He has a doctorate in some kind of theology, and so he's pretty smart. And we were talking about all this liturgical stuff, and he said, you know, he says the liturgical playground is actually very, very broad. Um, and so, for example, as, as he was saying, I didn't check with him before I made this program, so I'm not going to say his name. He probably wouldn't mind, but I should probably check before I would use his name on the radio. But he's a priest in very, very good standing with the diocese, and he's very well educated and very smart. But um, he was telling me that, um, he said, you know, he goes, if a priest wants to go in and, you know, mumble through Mass, just, you know, kind of, I shouldn't say mumble, but just have a simple recited Mass, kind of like what we have early morning Masses, you know, like, you know, here at the cathedral, we have a 6.30 morning mass. At St. Joe's in Hayes, we had a 6.30 morning mass. People are coming to mass and they got to get to work, you know. And so we don't really want to, you know, we, we, we just kind of stick to the basics, the essentials of mass so people can come, you know, hear the readings, hear a little reflection on the readings, have some spiritual food for the day to kind of chew on, and then, you know, receive the Eucharist and go off to work. And so, you know, these masses last 20, 30 minutes, you know, it's just a very simple recited mass. That is a valid and a very authentic expression of the Mass. No problem. Or we can, you know, come on Sunday and, you know, our experience of Sunday Mass where we have music and we sing an opening song and an offertory song and a communion song and a closing song. And, and, you know, we have the, 
sing the various mass parts. You know, we sing the Gloria, we sing the Lord have mercy, you know, we sing the Lamb of God, you know, and so then, you know, the, the mass is, uh, it is much more dressed up. And, you know, and of course, it takes more time, which is all well and good. And so, you know, that is also a very authentic and, 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 and genuine expression of the Mass as well. Or, you know, we can have, some of you may have heard of what's called the Ad Orientum, which literally means to the East, but that's not what it means in, in practice. What it means is, in the, the, the Mass book that we have, in the, the ritual that the priest reads from, from Mass, the Roman Missal, that big fat red book that you see the the servers bring up and hold for the priest when he when he prays what are called the presidential prayers you know the the opening prayer and the closing prayer and also the prayer over the gifts but the 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 Merlin missile is on the on the altar for the prayer over the gifts but um what it, what the the Roman missile actually sort of assumes that whenever the priest is praying the liturgy the, uh, the Eucharistic prayer and also during the during the institution narrative, when you, when the priest takes the bread and wine and says, "This is my body, this is my blood," that the priest is actually facing the front. He's not facing the people. He's facing the front of the church along with the people, and everybody is all you know. The priest and the people are all facing the front and offering this sacrifice together to God. That's called the ad orientum. That's gaining some traction. Um, there there are some um, some of the priests who have studied this and um, and they're they're incorporating that into their celebrations of the Eucharist in their parishes. And if they do that again, that is another legitimate, authentic manifestation or celebration of the Mass, part of that broad playground. Um, you also might have heard of what's called the extraordinary form. Um, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth some time ago issued a, a papal decree telling priests that they have the right, if they want to, that we can celebrate, you know, the, the, the old-style Latin Mass, if you know how to do it. See, I don't even know how to do it. I'd have to go get some special training if I wanted to do it. But that we can do that. That, that Again, that, if, that a priest celebrating the Mass in Latin, as we did before 1965, that's allowable, you know, and so the thing of it is, what we see is, you know, there there is a very, very wide and broad playground, you know, and you know, whenever we're talking about celebrating the, you know, the mass, that um, it can be a simple recited thing, it can be, you know, in English, it can be a a more, you know, dressed up thing in English with lots of music and singing and incense and all that kind of good stuff, the ad orientum where the where the Priests and the people are all facing the same way. And also, you know, the old Latin mass, you know, the extraordinary form mass, where again, yeah, the, the priests and the people would all be facing the same the same direction as well. But at the same time, you know, we, we see that, um, you know, there, there's all these various um, ways that, um, that the mass can be celebrated and they're all authentic. They're all legitimate. They're all, they're all legal, you know, in the, in the church. Now, the thing is where we run into problems, and this is kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to record this program, is because just like the ancient Corinthians, what we're seeing in our own times from clergy and lay people alike is, you know, you'll have someone that will say, well, you know, those traditional people, those Latin mass people, they're just not up with Vatican II. And I'm up with Vatican II. I do the mass in English, you know, and I go to mass in English. I'm not like those old fuddy-duddy Latin people. You know, since I do mass in English, I'm just kind of a cut above them. Or, you know, someone says, no, we do the traditional Latin Mass. You know, the English Mass, that's, a, that's an aberration. Who's ever doing the English Mass, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. You know, Latin is the way it's supposed to be done. And real Catholics, I mean, you, you can, you know, you can, I suppose you can call yourself a Catholic if you go to the English Mass you know, or whatever the language is, if you're, you know, Hispanic, you go to Spanish Mass, or if you're a Frenchman, you go to French Mass or whatever. But real Catholics go to the Latin Mass, and because we go to the Latin Mass, we're just a little bit better than you. Well, see, that's bad news. We can't have that. That's completely unacceptable. Now, the thing is, is again, beanbag chair Masses, consecrating hampers and Cokes, that's bad news. You know, that's off the playground altogether. Um, that's totally illegitimate. Um, that that is not valid. That is not licit. Um, that's bad, you know. But then there's also other liturgical things, like you know. I don't know if this still happens much anymore. I know the younger clergy; it wouldn't happen with them at all. But you know, but like during the '70s, if you lived during that era, even maybe through the '80s and '90s. But you know, you'd have you know the priest starts mass in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and also with you or with your spirit. Good morning. Good morning, Father. See, that's off the playground. That's not, that's not in the book. That's not part of the, of, of, of the, of the liturgy. And, and so, you know, again, when, when people are trying to say, well, you know, we're, we're just trying to make the liturgy, you know, more folksy and, and more, you know, try to, you know, so that it's not so pie in the sky. We want to be, make it realistic and make it applicable to, pe- to people's lives. Well, you know, we have lots of things that are realistic and applicable to people's lives. It's called the Pizza Hut. It's called the VFW Hall. It's called the high school basketball game. We have all that. You know, the liturgy is meant to take us out of the here and the now, okay? And so, again, you know, I, while, while, you know, the, you know the, the liturgy is a pretty wide field, and like I said, there's, there's all these different ways that the church allows for the valid and the licit, you know, the valid, the true, and the legal um, celebration of the, of the Mass. But, the, but again, I, th- I think the problem comes in is that number one, when lay, lay people and clergy alike go, well, but because I celebrate the liturgy in this way, or because I go to the liturgy that's celebrated in this way, in Latin or English or ad orientum or whatever, that makes me just a little bit better than you who don't do it my way. And see, that's bad news. We, do, we just can't have that. That's just completely unacceptable. And, and again, you know, I, I, I want to be sensitive to the fact that some folks are rightfully, you know, they're, they're rightfully reacting to the liturgical kookiness that went on during the 60s and 70s. You know, good morning, good morning, Father. Well, instead of bread and wine, we're going to sell, we're going to, you know, consecrate beer and pizza at this Mass because that's what people are used to is beer and pizza. They're not used to bread and wine. You know, we want to reach people where they're at. No, we don't. We want, you know, the, this whole idea of, you know, we need to bring the liturgy down to the level of the people, that's bad news. What we want to do is raise the people up to the, to the level of the liturgy. And um, that's harder. I mean, even, it's even, that's even the same way like in catechesis. You know, well, we, we, need to, we need to bring religion down to the level of the young people. No, we don't. We need to bring the young people up to the level of religion. You know, we, do, we don't do that in any other field of study. You know, when you say, well, you know, we're, we're, going, we're going to bring chemistry or physics down to the level of the people. No, we don't. We bring people up to the level of chemistry and physics. You know, do you want to be operated on by a surgeon who, you know, had surgery brought down to his level or who the surgeon was raised up to the cutting edge level of, of the best of surgery in the world? I mean, you know, the, this whole idea of that we have to, you know, lower things down to some lowest common denominator that's bad news. That, that's just, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work in any other field of study. And why we think it works in religion and liturgy is beyond me. It just doesn't work. And so, again, you know, looking back at the fact that you know, this, the liturgy, which is at the same time very personal and very powerful, um, you know, liturgical you know, mistakes and goofiness have been going on since the time of St. Paul. And, they've been go- and they go on to this very day. Um, I have a while back one of the when I was at Fort Hayes State at the campus center there, um, one of the kids gave me a, a, a beer stein, even though I don't drink beer. But um, on the beer stein it says, "Say the black, do the red," and um, what that means is whenever you open up the Roman Missal, there's the black letters, which is the part that we pray, and there's the red letters that are called the rubrics, kind of ruby rubrics, red, get it? And um, they're called the rubrics, and they tell you what to do. And so as you're reading along in the, in the Roman Missal, it'll say, the priest with hands extended, you know, says the following prayer. Or the priest says, and these are similar words, you know, something or other. And so the, the rubrics tell you what to do. And then, and then the black tells you what to say. And so we, we say the black and we do the red. And as long as we do that, we're okay. You know, we're, we're, we're functioning within the mind of the church and what the church wants us to do. And, um, and so then and that's, that's the way it should be. That's the way it works out. So again, like I said, in, in this installment of Double-Edged Sword, we were just trying to kind of look at um, some of the, the goofy things that happen with liturgy and why it shouldn't be, you know, that why clergy and lay people alike need to conform to what the church says because that's what holds us together. And that even though there is a very wide and varied um, field there for people to celebrate the liturgy, whether it's in Latin or the native language or, you know, the various ways that we can do that, um, well and good, but we don't want to fall into the same trap that the Corinthians fell in, 
know, the Corinthians were saying, well, we speak in tongues and you don't, therefore we're just a little bit better than you. Well, we have the traditional Latin mass and you don't, and so we're just a little bit better than you. Or, you know, we, you know, we, we, we follow you know, what Vatican II says, you know, so we're just a little bit better than you and so on. Um, that's not good. We can't have that. You know, the liturgy is supposed to pull us together, you know, one bread, one cup. And as, as Jesus says in the Gospel of St. John, there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so the last thing we want to do is use the liturgy, which is supposed to pull us together, and then use that to, you know, to break us apart somehow. So again, um, this is the Double-Edged Sword program. You've been listening to Father Fred Gatchett. I am the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral here in Salina, and also um, I teach religion part-time at two hours a day to our sophomores at Sacred Heart High School here in Salina, and I'm very glad to be able to do that. And um, on this, on, on, so on the Double-Edged Sword program here, we've been talking about some of the goofy things that happen in liturgy. Again, I invite you, as always, to contact the radio station. You can um, go to our website at www.dv, that's V as in Victor, dvmercy.com. And on the website, there are archived uh, installments of the Double-Edged Sword program um, done by all kinds of various priests. Um, Those are very good to go back and listen to. We also have um, the One Body program which is also produced locally. That's one of the things about the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations. I think we probably have more locally produced programming than most Catholic radio stations do. Again, most of the programming on on Divine Mercy comes from EWTN, and we're glad to have that. But we also have a lot of of locally produced programming as well, um, which is difficult to do. And so we're glad to be able to do that for you. And so again, um, feel free to contact the station at 785-621-4110. Or again, you can also again go to the go to the website. There's a spot on there. Um, there are things you can click on to contact the station if you have a comment or if you have an idea for a future installment of Double-Edged Sword. Also, our favorite button, the donate button. Remember that Catholic Radio is not. We don't. We can't sell advertising like like um like commercial radio stations do. We don't get any money from the government. Thanks be to God. And so we basically you know re- rely on our listeners to to support these Catholic radio waves. One of the things I always tell people about Catholic radio, one of the geniuses of it, is that a lot of times people have, you know, you'll have people in your home or in your family or in your, at work or whatever, and maybe they're, you know, criticizing the church or making fun of your faith or whatever, and you go, I never know what to say. You know, we, I have a sister, I have a brother, you know, they were raised Catholic with the rest of us, and now they go to Pastor Bob's Happy Clappy Gospel Good Time Hour, and, and you know, they, they're always, you know, bad-mouthing the church and everything, and I never know how to respond. Well, that's why we have Catholic Radio, because Catholic Radio partners with the Holy Spirit, and so you can't lose. And so tell folks, look, just tune into Catholic Radio this week for an hour. Either sit down for an hour and listen to, an, to a full hour of it, or just, you know, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there when you're in the car or whatever, and I'll leave you alone. And just let Catholic Radio and the Holy Spirit do the rest. Um, that's why we have this, and it's, it's a great thing. So again, um, we invite you to contact the station if you have any ideas. Um, look, at, look at the other things that Catholic Radio offers. And so we're getting ready to sign off here. So again, this is the, the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KVDM 88.1 Hayes, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina. And you have been listening to the, to the Double-Edged Sword program here on Divine Mercy Catholic Radio. And so again, we thank you for tuning in. We're looking forward to visiting with you on a future date about a different topic. So stay tuned and God bless.